Okay, everyone, thank you very much for being here tonight. This is the third in a series of kind of open forum discussions and presentations called The Elephant in the Room, where our particular church, uh, First Colony Christian Church, is addressing different topics that most churches tend to avoid or be uncomfortable about. This is not a debate. We're not trying to come to uh, a decision about where the church stands through the course of the evening, nor are we coming in with a specific agenda and trying to uh, show the church's particular support, one way or the other, of a position on any of these topics. Instead, the purpose of tonight is not to see whether who wins, <laughs> but it's merely to provoke thought. It is to have each and every one of you perhaps consider a side of this topic that you may not have considered before, or at least be exposed to uh, thinking in a way of humanitizing someone who might espouse a belief that's different than your own. Uh, the ongoing motivation for the entire series is one of trying to recognize the fact that as Christians we can each have extremely different ideas that are based on faith and can be based on scripture, that do not need to polarize us as a church or Christianity as a larger community. Any questions about that before we start? No? Wonderful. We are being recorded tonight. Uh, I will be serving as moderator. I bring it up just so you're aware, one. And two, when we do get to the question and answer section of this evening, uh, for the sake of the recording, if we could do our best not to talk over or interrupt one another, uh, and I will do my best to make sure that everyone is heard. Uh, I'd like to introduce our speakers and the topic. Uh, the topic this evening is homosexuality. And we're going to talk about what the scripture says and tradition says about homosexuality uh, and how we should interpret that or perhaps view it or apply it. Now, this is not necessarily as violent a topic as the previous ones we've covered, abortion or uh, war and the death penalty. However, this is, a <laughs> this is a very serious topic, though, to those people that it personally affects. And I bet you everybody in this room, if you take a moment to reflect, can picture one person in your head that you know or have been exposed to or know someone who would find this topic tonight very impactful and very serious. So please keep that in mind. A little lightheartedness is fine, but uh, let's uh, keep it in check. <laughs> um, I'd like to introduce first uh, Mike Skinner. He will be presenting the uh, against position on the topic. He is our pastor here at First Colony Christian Church. Um, and then, of course, Adam McIntyre, who will be supporting, uh, or excuse me, presenting our four position for homosexuality. Uh, scripturally. And Adam McIntyre is uh, our former youth minister who went off to bigger and better things and has been uh, gracious enough to return and participate in his old church family tonight. So thanks for coming back, Adam. Um, a keynote. The people who are presenting, Adam and Mike, in this particular instance, do not necessarily personally espouse the positions they are presenting. This is not necessarily from the heart. They have been asked specifically to present a side of a topic. And they are merely presenting the topic as a supporter would present it so that we can be familiar with the material and the perspective therein. 
So do, please do not look at Adam as someone necessarily who is for or against homosexuality and nor Mike Skinner. If you're interested in their personal beliefs, I'm sure they'll be happy to talk to you well after we're finished. On another note, since we're all trying to explore this and understand this topic, if someone in the audience should pose a question, please look at that as them simply trying to understand and know, not necessarily themselves attacking, defending, or taking personally the topic. Okay? All right. You've heard me talk plenty. Uh, we're going to start off with um, each side will present roughly 10 to 15 minutes on the topic. There'll be an, op- uh, an opportunity, excuse me, for the uh, opposing position to present not necessarily a rebuttal, but a response to what was said. And then uh, after that has happened, we will open the floor for questions. Um, uh, please wait to either be recognized, although that's going to work for the first two, maybe three questions, <laughs> and then that's okay. As long as we're respectful and courteous to each other, we're going to have a really excellent discussion, I'm sure. Uh, so, without further ado, uh, Mike, would you open up with uh, the position of against homosexuality? Will do. Uh, first, I want to say thanks for Adam for coming back and being with us. Secondly, I am happy tonight to be presenting the more traditional Christian view, as opposed to last week's Death penalty in war view. Uh, so I hope Adam gets. I think Michelle got one question the entire time. So I'm hoping that Adam gets slammed with questions. He's going to get slammed. And I'll be able to. I'll be able to relax a little bit tonight. Um, Feel the love. If you have a, a Bible with you, uh, open up to Leviticus 18 and then Romans 1. If you could maybe do a finger uh, on both of those. I think Jake's going to get some Bibles. If you're interested, just flag Jake down, uh, and he will graciously uh, get you a Bible. I want to start off by saying when we we talk about homosexuality, there are a few different caveats uh, and and different things that can be brought up and need to uh, be distinguished. So just to get started here, the traditional Christian view, the one that I'll be supporting tonight, makes a distinction between what you might call same-sex attraction and then same-sex behavior. Uh, And so... As far as I'm aware, the Christian tradition has never claimed that orientation uh, or desire or attraction is a sin. Um, It's the behavior that matters. In the scriptures, it's all about the action, the doing, the behavior. Um, So one can't be um, held accountable for a desire or for an attraction. Um, But one can be held accountable scripturally for an action. So the same way that a 13-year-old boy is not um, condemned by the scriptures for getting excited when a young female walks by with a low-cut shirt on, right? Would be the same way. I mean, he has no control over that. That's an innate desire within him. Now, if he acts on that, the scriptures might come in and say there are certain actions you should do, certain actions you shouldn't do. So that uh, important, I think, delineation at the beginning, that sexual, same-sex attraction not necessarily being condemned here, it's the same-sex behavior. And so that's the kind of language you'll get in the kind of Christian circles when they talk about the argument. Now, I know for Protestants... This might not hold a whole lot of weight to us, but the church has historically, the Judeo-Christian tradition has historically and almost unanimously condemned and prohibited homosexual behavior. You can go as far back as ancient Israel, as far back as you look, all the way up to New Testament periods, all the way through the early church, through the medieval church, up till the modern church. Now, just recently, there has been a strain um, of Christians pushing against this idea. You've even seen recently some denominations starting to turn the tide. Um, but there's a long, long, long stand of Christian thinkers united together and saying this is off limits um, from God's eyes. Now, 
I consider that a pretty powerful thought to be dealt with. Again, we're from more of a free church tradition that doesn't want to be restrained by tradition and the church tradition. I understand that. But I think that is a powerful thing to reckon with. It's also worth noting that the church, when they've stood against homosexuality, it's been countercultural and, and kind of vicious, the attack that's come on them at times. So sometimes I think we frame the discussion, and when we talk about ancient thinkers and, and writers, in such a way that makes us sound a lot smarter than them, and like we're in a situation they were never in. Um, so perhaps those people way long ago thought that homosexuality was wrong. That's because everyone thought that. They didn't know what we think. They didn't meet the same people we've met, things of that nature. Um, in fact, though, ancient cultures, varyingly, were very affirming of homosexuality, um, even at times pedophilia, other type things um, that, I mean, we deal with today. Um, so when Paul, for instance, in the first century writes against homosexuality, that would be a very offensive thing to the Greco-Romans of the time. Um, they were very affirming in certain contexts of homosexuality. So it's not as if the biblical thinkers didn't face the opposition that we might face taking these stances uh, and didn't have the same kind of information that we might have. Now, not only is there a long history of the church prohibiting homosexual behavior, but there is explicit scriptural teaching uh, against homosexual behavior, both in the Old Testament and the New. So we'll start in Leviticus 18, um, which... I will hasten to add, Adam might point this out, uh, I'm not sure that you can just blatantly take things from Leviticus uh, and, and get a universal ethic from them, um, but I do think it establishes the trajectory the New Testament maintains. So for instance, there are things in Leviticus, Leviticus 18 that I don't think necessarily we should follow today, but it's there and it's worth noting. Um, so if you're in Leviticus 18, uh, verse 22 is where we'll be. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. If you flip to Leviticus chapter 20, uh, verse 13, you'll see this. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Um, now, the act of homosexuality in ancient Israel was seen as a higher level type sin. Um, and so this might come as a shock to us scripturally. It doesn't seem as all sins are equal, necessarily, and this is easy to prove in the Old Testament. Certain sins, there's not much of a consequence for. You get slapped on the wrist. Certain sins you die for. for. Homosexuality was one of these type of sins. Um, from the Levitical Codes, you died because of this. Um, now, there's also interesting arguments about death penalty, which I had last week, and things of that nature, and how we should read Leviticus. It's worth noting that this is a serious thing to the ancient Israelites, um, which they believe they received from the Lord. Um, this is something that threatens the very fabric of what we believe and what we're trying to do in the world as God's people. Now, when you move into the New Testament, uh, kind of the key text is Romans 1. So we'll be in Romans 1. I really do think this is the center um, textually for the, the conversation. In Romans 1, you get what's probably the most explicit condemnation prohibition in the New Testament and in the scriptures. We'll read through the, the first big section here. Um, we're in a section starting in verse 18 that goes through 32, talking about God's wrath on unrighteousness. 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. A couple things worth noting. One, Paul is talking about natural theology. So this is pre-sin. 
Okay, he's drawing on the Genesis text, which Jesus will draw on also when he talks about sexual ethics and marriage and divorce. Um, so we don't have the confusion of sin here. Um, and it's also a universal type thing. Paul's going to make an argument that he says and he thinks anyone in the world can deduce just by virtue of existing, by the way that creation is set up. Um, that certain things are true about God, invisible attributes. Um, they've been made perceived. So they, you and I, are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. First step in Paul's argument here and unpacking God's wrath, human beings have become idolaters. So we think incorrect thoughts about God, and we don't worship God. And now certain things will start to, as a domino, shift down. His next step. Therefore, God gave them up. You'll see this phrase, gave them up three times. God's wrath here is passive, in that he lets us do what we want to do, almost as if um, a child's running into the street. One way to be wrathful toward that child would be to hit them or you know, slam them down and kick them, whatever. Another way to be wrathful would be to what? Let them run in the street and get run over by a car. That's a very passive way to be wrathful, but that's wrath nonetheless. That's the kind of wrath portrayed Romans 1, that as human beings stop worshiping God, his response is to go, see where that gets you. Three times, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. All right, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Here we see homosexuality. Um, it's presented here as evidence that God is wrathful toward humanity, toward creation. Notice, really interesting here, homosexuality isn't a punishment from God. And it doesn't even seem necessarily that God's punishing the homosexuals. What Paul seemingly wants us to think about is that when you see homosexuality, it's evidence that we've already gone wrong. This is evidence that we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And it's evidence of the wrath of God that he's allowing us to play in these things that he did not design. And so back in Genesis, um, we have a framework laid out for us about marriage and sexuality and life. Sex throughout the scriptures is seen as particularly something that you need strict ethics around because it's such a powerful thing. Like the tongue, it has the ability to do beautiful things and the ability to rip creation apart at its very fabric. And so there are tight boundaries laid across it all throughout the scriptures. Um, and so God's wrath is seen, Paul says, and the fact that we get to play around with creation and there's actually no divine intervention. Like he's not stopping us from hurting ourselves. Um, so again, whether we agree, disagree, this seems to be what Paul's presenting to us here. In verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Parents, this is a useful verse for you. Foolish, faithless, heartless, truthless. Though they know God's degree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Um, two things worth noting. We, we already hit this. Uh, it seems that Paul's thought here on homosexuality is natural theology based. It's based in 
kind of God's revelation that you can see through nature. And so here's where arguments would abound. We're not going to go into the God made Adam, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? Stuff like that. But it shouldn't take, it doesn't take a, a nuclear physicist, right, to see a male and a female and just see how things fit together and seemingly were created for each other there. Um, there's this idea of what's natural, how God has created things to work, almost as if God sets up a game with certain rules. And if the rules are followed, if the game is played, if the dance is danced correctly, if you don't go out of step, or if the song is played correctly, if you don't hit a wrong note, there's beauty to be found. There's life to be found. There's shalom, peace, Genesis 1 to be found. But if you play the wrong notes, or if you misstep the dance, things start to unravel. And so there are these boundaries here to try to keep us unraveling. And, and what the scripture seems to present is that part of the way creation was meant to work, to lead us into life, was through man and woman getting married. When you step out of that, perhaps things start to unravel. Um, and perhaps that's why the scriptures um, condemn it and prohibit that kind of relation. Now, uh, it's worth noting as well, there's other scriptures, primarily 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10, which would address homosexuality um, with two um, slightly synonymous, not exactly, terms for homosexuality. Also in 1 Timothy, you might find it there, although that's debated. debated. Um, it's worth noting that Paul was very much aware of monogamous, loving, homosexual relationships. Um, that's sometimes an argument brought against the, the text. Um, and it's an argument of Western superiority. Um, that, and it's kind of an arrogance you see a lot when we read ancient texts. There's, they didn't understand the kind of things we understand. He could not have imagined that a man would love another man and be in a single committed relationship for 18, 35 years, however long it is. In fact, that was kind of a well-known thing in the Greek world. Um, and Paul doesn't address um, relations that just have to do with kind of what we might call immoral type acts. Um, so, for instance, some will come to these texts like in Romans and 1 Corinthians and say, what Paul's really talking about here is rape or sex outside of this committed marriage or committed togetherness. Uh, or even pedophilia, or just the act of lust uh, and immorality and sleeping around and things of that nature. Um, I would again harken back to, to textually that doesn't seem to be there, not only because Paul situates the, the concept of homosexuality in nature, but also you see surrounding this, um, you don't see those kind of qualifications. Again, if we'll read verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relationships for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's worth noting for those who would want to think that the only homosexuality the scriptures address is homosexuality in the abusive system um, where you're raping or abusing or in some other way hurting another human being, that that did not apply to women. Um, back in the day, the women's relationship with homosexuality. In fact, a lot of the ancient texts, um, when they talk about homosexuality, don't mention women and lesbianism. Paul does here, seemingly taking, again, the conversation out of that kind of discussion and into a much larger, broader discussion of nature and creation and the way that God meant things to be. Um, so I think, um, following along with the church's trajectory, um, Christians um, stand... Uh, in tradition here and in uh, support of the scripture saying that this is not how God intended things to be, intended things to be created. Now, we are in the middle of an equality movement um, where equal rights for gays and lesbians um, and kind of all these alternative sexualities are being pushed. That is a whole other topic when we get into the political arena, which we will address when we do our politics. Um, so I would like to set forth that saying that homosexuality is a sin, I don't think necessarily means that you should oppose gay rights. 
politically or post-gay marriage, things of that nature. I think it's a whole separate discussion. Um, but I would say I think as Christian individuals and Christian communities, we should agree with the scriptures and tradition that this is not how God intended things to work. Um, and it's, in fact, what you might want to put a label sin on. This is outside of God's intended desire for creation. However, I think that the discussion, the conversation has become so vicious and confusing among Christians and among homosexuals and, and the outside world and culture to where you and I, if we take this kind of position, are seen as evil, small-minded, hate-filled people. I mean, we're just really out to get it, um, out to get these, these homosexuals, and, and we have no care and no love for them. And how could you possibly tell someone not to pursue the deepest desires of their hearts? And that makes you an evil person in the minds of lots of people. I think the church does need to respond to the equality movements, but not by compromising their position on this issue. I listed three ways we might respond that might be more biblical ways. The first is a renewed focus on singleness being the primary station of life for Christians. There's a strong strand of biblical scholarship that thinks from the New Testament, particularly 1 Corinthians 7 with Paul and from the early church, the Christians actually thought you should be single if you're a Christian. That that's the primary way to live as a Christian. And the burden of proof is on you if you want to get married. It's easier to serve the Lord if you're single. You have less distractions. Um, Paul, again, is pretty clear about this. I desire for you to be single. I think you're going to get kind of mixed up in some things. Now, it's not wrong, but this is the primary decision for you. Now, if we start to focus in on that and pursue that strain of scholarship, that strain of thinking, which is very foreign to us as Americaners, right, as Westerners, it's all about the family unit. It's as how quick can you get married? Find your life partner, right? I mean, find that person that you're meant to be with. And again, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around, but perhaps this would be a way for us to address the issue. If you want to be a follower of Christ, the issue is not can you pursue your sexual desires or not, but should you? What about this long tradition of Christians who say you should actually be single and celibate? Getting married is actually a, a, a kind of option for Christians. Um, it's worth noting in the Genesis text in Israel, Christian or God's people were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. Christianity is not a religion, according to the scriptures, that grows by birth, that grows by sex and procreation. We grow by conversion, by sharing the news. That's how the gospel kind of reaches all peoples. It's going to take a long time and not be very effective if we go another route, right? Which is let's have a lot of kids, hope they say with our faith, and kind of go through that. All of the fruitful, multiplied commands in the Old Testament are transformed into conversion, evangelistic commands in the New Testament. Worth thinking about. I think that would be a biblical way maybe to meet the challenges by this movement in our culture. Another one would be to critique the emphasis of sexual identity in conversations of personal life. This is a very interesting thing where we have, and it's kind of a new thing, wrapped up sexual identity with who we are as a person. As if, if you're not able to fulfill or pursue your sexual desires, that's asking you not to live and not to be happy and not to be a real human being. I don't think that's warranted at all. And I think we all need to maybe halt the, the break here a little bit and step back and go, is that really, I mean, is our sexual identity really that wrapped up in life and personhood and who we are and how we should and, and should expect to live? I'm not so sure that, that we've embraced something that maybe even just philosophically the world should not embrace as much. Um, we live in a very romanticized, sexualized culture where if you can't do the sexual things you want to do, why are you living? I'm not sure that's an assumption we should jump on board with. Um, uh, the last one is a biblical call for genuine community and koinonia. Perhaps an interesting question for the church would be, what kind of church would you need to be to look at a homosexual or someone with same-sex attraction and say, we don't think you should fulfill those desires? Again, in some cultures, that's asking them not to have a family, 
not to have strong relational support, things of that nature, to be kind of excluded and lonely for the rest of life. What kind of community, though, would it take to go say, well, we're your family. I mean, you're going to eat with us. We're going to take care of you. We're going to love you. We'll have a strong relationship as you could ever have with someone, right, with a sexual intimacy, monogamous, kind of long-term committed thing. Um, so, again, I think three ways we might move toward um, meeting the equality movement. I'm over my time. I turn my time over to court. All right. Thank you, Mike. Uh, just for the record, if you have never experienced our church before, we do own an air conditioning unit. Uh, it is just currently... Proven. And you're meeting it. This is how it likes to act. Yeah. So thank you for your fortitude. Uh, all right, Adam, let's, let's hear the other side of this issue. All right. Well, as uh, Mike kind of stated, and I'll just kind of summarize for you guys quickly, um, here are the typical biblical arguments against homosexuality. Uh, there's six main passages that which uh, negatively condemn homosexuality. Uh, he listed some of them, not all of them. Uh, and then there is the issue of Genesis 1 through 3, and that God created things to work in a certain way, and that homosexuality is a sign of the fall. It's a sign of how we have stepped outside of that created order. So the Bible is clear in what it neg- negatively prohibits and what it positively approves, right? So the typical argument is that being homosexual is fine, but acting on those urges is sinful, right? I think uh, Mike made that pretty clear in his argument. Um, so gay people then have a problem. Uh, they want to have sex with the wrong people. They are seen as essentially lustful, sexual people. While straight people can fall in love, uh, get married, have families, gay people just have sex. Uh, while straight people are told to avoid lust, casual relationships, and promiscuity, gay people are told to avoid romantic relationships altogether. Um, straight sexuality is seen as a good thing. Uh, it's a gift. Um, it can be useful, and it can it can be used in sinful or irresponsible ways. But it can also be harnessed and oriented toward a loving marriage relationship that will be blessed and celebrated by the community. But for homosexuals, even though they are capable of and desire loving relationships that are just as important to them, they are told that lifelong committed relationships are sinful. Homosexual relationships are seen as intrinsically sinful, no matter the context or the quality. One of the main arguments against homosexuality is the fact that it goes against God's natural design for things. Uh, in Genesis 1-3, through 3, um, we have the paradigm that Mike talked about. God created things. Uh, he created male and female uh, to be in a relationship um, so that the uh, man would not have to be alone. Um, and then, so homosexuality then is a sign of that fall, right? Uh, which is where we get the phrase that Mike told us to avoid, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? Um, and so it's also one of the main reasons why we won't allow homosexual marriages as well, because it goes outside of what we believe a marriage should uh, look like. And so what I would like to do right now, if you would, is I want us to re-examine um, what we might consider to be natural or unnatural, uh, and so in order for that to happen, what I want us to do first is I want us to recover or rediscover our identities as Gentiles. And so here's what I mean. This is going to mean three different things for us to rediscover our identities as Gentiles. First is that we are not, by nature, children of God. Uh, we've been chosen and adopted. So in the language of Paul, we have been grafted in to the tree of Israel. All right? Second, this action of God, this action of grafting Gentiles into the tree of Israel... Uh, highlights how the grace and election of God determines the people of God. Um, yeah, grace and election of God determines the people of God. We are God's children because of 
election. This puts election at the center of the Christian notion of marriage rather than, rather than the Darwinian focus of procreation. Uh, so therefore, marriage is grace, not biology. Uh, I'll talk more on that later, but that's not really the focus. Um, and so finally, the third part, uh, and most importantly, is that uh, our recovery of our identity as Gentiles will help us understand why God's actions towards the Gentiles was such a shock and offense to the Jews. Uh, And this shock was focused on issues of morality and holiness. All right? Keep that in mind. Um, So us as Gentiles, we are a shock and abomination to Jews. And that shock comes from uh, issues of holiness and morality. All right? So... Uh, now let's take a look at what, uh, for today's discussion, I will term as the standard argument. All right, uh, and it's uh, standard because it's an argument that has been used throughout history. And so let's look at that argument. Um, and it's an argument that has been used uh, throughout history to argue for the moral inferiority of a marginalized class of people. All right, that's what the argument's purpose is. Uh, and so a common example of the uh, mo- of the moral inferiority inferiority is sexual promiscuity. Uh, that's the thrust of many of these arguments, of many of these standard arguments. So here's some examples. Uh, in the Middle East, the standard argument is applied to women. All right, women are sexually promiscuous. Uh, therefore, they require a variety of social restraints to keep them in check. In the Middle East, women are blamed for all adultery. Uh, the woman is the temptress. If a man cheats on his wife, it's the woman's fault who seduced him. Uh, that's just how it is. Um, it also, the standard argument also applied to blacks in the American South during segregation, uh, during segregation and slavery. In particular, the black male had a voracious sex- sexual appetite for the white woman. All right? uh, in both cases, we see how immorality generally and sexual promiscuity in particular get attributed to natural kinds. All right? Uh, so in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the same reasoning was applied to Gentiles. The same standard argument was applied to Gentiles. As natural kinds, the Gentiles were considered to be naturally more prone to immorality and especially sexual deviance. All right, so uh, I'm just going to read the section from Romans 1 again that Mike already read. Uh, it's not the whole thing. I'm just going to read 24 through 28, 27. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women, and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. Um, so, these Gentiles are naturally depraved, they're naturally deviant. All right? Consequently, they engage in acts that are contrary to nature. Uh, this is another example of the standard argument applied to Gentiles, women, blacks, and now homosexuals of our, t- of our time. Uh, and it's important to note, uh, not just that Gentiles do unnatural things, but they are morally inferior by nature. All right? So, this helps us to recover the shock, uh, the moral shock, of God's excessive grace in Galatians 3.28. I'm going to flip there and read it really quickly. Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
the shock of, uh, I'm sorry, uh, we are seeing in this passage a fusion of natural kinds, morally inferior with the morally superior. All right? Uh, Galatians 3.28 is more... Uh, is about more than just slavery relations or, or gender issues. All right? It is about morality and it is about holiness. Uh, more, it's about God's fusion in Jesus Christ of natural kinds. All right? Kinds that were believed to represent either holiness or depravity. Uh, the shock of God's action goes even deeper. All right? Later in Romans 11, I'm going to flip there now. Uh, the phrase perifusin uh, reappears, which was used in Romans 1. Uh, in Romans 1, uh, uh, perifusin in English would mean contrary to nature. Uh, so when it says, for the women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, uh, and the men likewise, right? Um, that phrase appears one more time in uh, the book of Romans, except this time, instead of talking about the Gentiles, this phrase is attributed to God, all right? Um, and so let me read it real quick for you. Romans 11, I'm going to start in uh, 24. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Uh, the Gentiles behave unnaturally, uh, and God, in his grace, does something just as unnatural. He overrides the category of natural moral kinds to create one body in Christ. This suggests that in the same-sex union debates, we may have to rethink nature in light of God's election. Uh, God has chosen the Gentiles, us, um, by nature homosexuals and perverts, uh, and has grafted us into the tree of Israel. Uh, And so how can we be certain of what is natural or what is unnatural, worshiping a God who acts contrary to nature, who acts perifusing? and so this section, the section of the argument that I just concluded, where we just all put our Gentile hats on, um, is by no means meant to legitimize the same-sex uh, relation debate. But the goal is to show you that arguments being made today against homosexuality are the same arguments uh, the Jews made to exclude the Gentiles. And so I wanted to frame my argument with this in mind, because often the mention of homosexuality in the church brings up strong, illogical, negative, and emotional reactions there was actually a study done in 1994 uh, by Haidt, Macaulay, and Rosen um, where they came to the conclusion that homosexuality is actually a disgust elicitor in many North Americans. This makes it very difficult to have open and honest discussion about the possibility that homosexuality is not a sin. However, if we are reminded that, as Gentiles, the Jews would have felt the same way about us as the church typically feels about homosexuals, And if we are willing to admit that just because something is natural or unnatural doesn't automatically make it sinful or wrong, and that God can and does act in ways that we would perceive as unnatural, we can have an open and honest discussion. Another reason why it is pivotal that we find ourselves in this mindset is that hermeneutics, or how we interpret scripture, is never neutral or objective. Uh, Hans-George Gadamer, I always pronounce his name wrong, uh, wrote a pivotal work called Truth and Method, uh, which shows that nobody just sees uh, what is in the plain text without consciously or unconsciously adding to it. Um, the problem is, when, uh, the problem with this, and that's fine, because sometimes there's, basically everyone comes in with prejudices, prejudices uh, as they read a text, which is not always a bad thing. If someone comes in the prejudice of, I'm going to be open-minded as I'm interpreting this text, that's a good thing, right? The problem is, when one is unaware of one's prejudices and substitutes one's own prejudice for understanding the object of interpretation, um, 
for the sake of time, I'm going to uh, cut out some of the examples I have there. Uh, so, uh, what do I interpret when a verse says one thing clearly, but I also know for a fact that the author didn't mean the same thing that we mean today? For example, is the Bible simply wrong when it clearly states that the sun revolves around the earth? Um, hermeneutics is a deep, dark, complicated pit of new problems. More than anything, knowledge of hermeneutics brings a humility that comes from unknowing. It's why I say that if I cannot be 100% certain that something is wrong, I would be a horrible person to place a prohibition on someone else for religious reasons. Good interpretation requires two-way dialogue between the Bible and contemporary culture and knowledge. For instance, uh, many comparisons of late have been made to slavery and homosexuality. Um, And many Christians automatically dismiss this analogy, uh, saying that the two are not comparable, that slavery and homosexuality are nothing alike, and so the analogy doesn't stand. Um, However, the analogy isn't between slavery and homosexuality. The analogy is between how Christians have interpreted the Bible on slavery and how Christians have interpreted the Bible on homosexuality. The analogy is about two defective ways of interpreting Scripture. So the Southern Baptists had a good Bible source argument uh, in support of slavery, right? Um, And today, most Christians have good Bible sourced arguments uh, to condemn the sin of same sex practices. However, having good Bible based arguments may be necessary for Christians, but it obviously isn't sufficient for adequate Christian belief. The biblical argument for for the abolition of slavery and the biblical argument against the sin of homosexual practice cannot be made by quoting particular scriptures. Uh, Where does God say that slavery should be abolished? And where does God say that same-sex couples are not sinning? Rather, the the scriptural appeals have to be made to a larger theological trajectory in scripture. Um, So I'm going to close with this. Um, That being said... I believe, and I will uh, probably get to a lot of the actual verses in my uh, rebuttal area, Um, I believe that most Christians, uh, anyone that has a nominal uh, knowledge of the Bible, can pick one up and form a pretty good argument against homosexuality. They could probably form a home run argument against homosexuality. It's in there. Um, However, the problem I find with that is that those arguments tend to be theologically thin. Um, So, for instance, many Christians, if you ask them, is homosexuality wrong? Absolutely. Why? Because God says so. Okay, why else? I don't know. Because it's against God's order. Um, And those are basically the two methods that we use to determine that it's a sin, because God said so, and because it goes against God's divine order. However, there's two other criteria that we typically use to decide whether or not something is a sin. And that is um, the harm principle and the holiness equation. Um, So does this sin harm you or other people? um, And does this sin affect your holiness? And on those two instances, homosexuality and the most strict strict uses of those those instances, homosexuality cannot apply to those two, uh, two, uh, the harm principle or the holiness equation. Um, so what it comes down to is um, how much you weight uh, the uh, biblical authority versus theology. Um, so, for instance, if you are Reformed or Southern Baptist or something like that, you're going to say that biblical authority weighs infinity times infinity. Wherever the Bible says goes, you're probably a literalist, um, and so 
no matter what anybody else is going to say, you're going to say homosexuality is a sin. Um, however, if you're more of an Episcopalian or maybe a Unitarialist, or, uh, you, how do you pronounce that? Uh, one of those people, um, you might weigh, uh, you might look at, uh, you might weigh theology way, he- way heavier than you would uh, interpreting the Bible to be literal. Um, and so, what it comes down to is um, that is going to influence how you view homosexuality. And if you're anything like me, uh, you're going to find yourself lying pretty much in the middle. Uh, so, if you love the Bible, um, like I do, uh, you don't want theology, reason, or human experience to trump the Bible. Uh, we, want the, uh, we want the Bible and theology, reason, experience to work in tandem, uh, mutually supporting and fueling one another. Uh, and this is why the issue of homosexuality is so painful for many Christians. It almost perfectly cuts down the middle. Um, uh, given the data, so given the data, Christians, as they weigh the data, will and have come out differently on this issue, um, uh, judging by how many Christians are for it and how many Christians are against it. Um, and so given my own ambivalence, um, I go with the old theological concept of adiaphora, all right, which means uh, middle matters or matters of indifference. So when the, when the reformers invoked adiaphora, they called for tolerance. Um, and, so, and thus I'm invoking it. Now, uh, if you don't know what adiaphora is, that's the reformers, when they came to a doctrinal issue that they, couldn't, they just couldn't get around and they couldn't come to agreements on, uh, they would just invoke this term and then say, let's just, tolerate, let's just be tolerant uh, of one another. Um, and now I know this, uh, this term does not exactly apply to this since this really isn't an uh, issue of biblical doctrine, um, but uh, it's the closest thing that we have to it right now. Um, and so I am calling for tolerance between Christians and churches as well uh, with homosexuals. Um, so my final biblical position on it is this. Um, and it's similar to Gamaliel's, I pronounce it wrong every time, in the book of Acts, um, which I know you're all going through the book of Acts, so you, hopefully this is fresh on your mind. Um, as the Christian movement was growing, the Jews were attempting to discern the will of God, just, as, just like we are in this instance right now. Were Christians evil, or were they good? Uh, Gamaliel gave this advice to the Jewish leaders. If this movement is from man, then it will ultimately crumble. But if it is from God, who can fight against it? I don't know if the gay Christian church is from God or man, but like Gamaliel, I've decided to stand aside, to love, and to allow room to grow. Only God will know the final outcome. Until then, I'll pick up the towel, and I don't bother much with whose feet I'm washing. And All right. Okay, now we're going to give Mike about five minutes to comment on what Adam said. So Mike, go ahead. First, well done. Uh, I really do think that was very well done. A um, couple of comments, real quick. Uh, first, I think, as you open up the argument, you, you, you're you using the kind of language, and rightly so, attributing it to people who've made the argument I've made, um, that's overly sexualized and overly individualized, which is, how could you ever possibly expect someone to be alive without feeling their sexual desires? How evil of you? Also, how could you ever expect someone to have a loving relationship? I think I heard that. Well... I have, I'm a single guy. I have lots of loving relationships. I don't have sex with females. I mean, I don't fulfill my sexual orientation on a daily basis. I don't consider myself deprived of any kind of human aspect, though, of, of being alive. Um, I have lots of monogamous. I have lots of one-on-one faithful, elective, covenant faithfulness relationships um, that satisfy me. Um, and so, again, I think possibly if the church can work to move the conversation away from that 
perhaps we can see things in clearer light. Um, I think the analogy of nature um, might not be fair um, when you talk about how by nature we are not children of God, we're children of God by election. Again, Paul in the scriptures, this is a creative type thing. We are all, every single one of us, by nature creatures. By nature in God's arena where he set up parameters of how life should work. Um, so the analogy I don't think necessarily works. Yes, Gentiles are not by nature God's children in terms of redemptive people of God. But Gentiles, Jewish people, homosexuals, straight people, everybody are on the same playing field as far as being in God's natural world that he's created with certain boundaries that can do your work those out, etc., etc. Um, you mentioned, and I'll just point this out, you said there's no prejudice. Obviously, everyone comes to the text with prejudice, but some prejudices are good, such so as the prejudice of coming to the text open-mindedly. Um, that the prejudice doesn't exist, uh, I would say. Um, I think your point's well taken, which is everyone's prejudice, but the, the option of being, being prejudiced against homosexuality and then prejudiced toward being objective it'd be to be prejudiced against the other side. I think that's worth noting. Um, I think, again, point well taken, but there's no, I think Gadamer's point is there's no middle ground. No one gets to claim a vacuum where they interpret text. We do all have objections, which are pre-assumptions, which is good to note when we come to the text. I think your strongest argument, and the one that, that gives me the most pause, is the, tra- the trajectory argument, the trajectory argument, which is we've seen this happen before with Gentiles, with slaves, with women, over and over, we've seen this happen, where God's people stand firm and say, no. And eventually the Spirit knocks them on their butt enough times to where those people are allowed in. Obviously, it's, you all can probably just bet, I don't think necessarily you're on the same trajectory with this. I do think point well taken. If you're not familiar, read the Civil War literature. Christians, the biblical Christians, the literalists, were on the side of slavery. And they accuse people who are arguing against slavery of not being scriptural enough. You don't have Bibles behind you. You don't have verses. We actually have verses. Um, one of our teachers um, that both Adam and I have says, most great heretics are literalists when it comes to the scriptures. Um, they, I mean, take every word woodenly, literally. Um, so, fair statement. However, I do think slavery, there are no scriptures prohibiting there are no, there are straight, clear-cut scriptures saying, yes, enslave people. You do have a clear, I think, trajectory over it. I think that changes the game when you do have clear commandments. Now, eunuchs, we've done this in Acts. Old Testament eunuchs are not accepted. New Testament eunuchs are. But it's there. We have the New Testament eunuchs are. So what I would say is, could it be a possibility that the clear scriptural commands that we have are renecked? I think if you look at the way the spirits worked, I would, and this might make me a flaming liberal or something, say it's in the realm of possibility. I would not want to be there when it happens or to be the one moving that, primarily because we have New Testament scripture supporting the trajectory we're already on. Um, and I, I would ask you, I pose this question to you, where on your spectrum of uh, in, uh, exegesis or biblical text and then interpretation of hermeneutics would you put tradition? Um, would you would you put a third tier there, and how would you weight it? Things of that nature, because you have a long tradition, which I think changes maybe the equation, where you're not just talking about hermeneutics and interpretation and text. You're also talking about a community that's unanimously interpreted the same way, and there's not that much new data. There's not that much new evidence. Always be concerned when someone comes up with a new idea without new data, right? So in science, if you get new data, guess what? All kinds of new ideas, and that's valid. But if, if, if the data's been static, 
and people start coming up with new ideas that no one's thought about looking at the same data for 2,000 years, be a little questionable. Now, this has happened in biblical scholarship before. When we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls and other documents, all of a sudden we get new ideas about Jesus and new ideas about the Gospels. That's allowed. Why? We had new data. We had new things to think about that the other parts of the church didn't have to think about. In this case, I'm not sure there's new data. Um, lastly, again, he mentioned the why question of, of homosexuality. Why is it bad? Well, because God says not to, right? Well, what? What about it, right? Homosexuals aren't murderers. They're not pedophiles. They're not people going around and destroying the American system of living and everything like that. I mean, we don't demonize them, right? Why? That's a good question. I would wonder, though, if you're limiting the actual depth of the nature argument, which is if God has defined life to work in a certain way, for the telos, for the goal of peace and happiness and joy and the, all the beauty and glory God created creation to be in, Perhaps that defines hurt and holiness. Perhaps he knows the rules of the game better. Again, I think good point. Maybe, though, nature, creation might shift the game a little bit. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. All right. Okay. All right, Adam. Um, respond. Man, I have, like, two things to respond to. Uh, so I'm going uh, to go first from your... Um, your first presentation, specifically just for the sake of time. I'm going to skip uh, stuff on Leviticus 18. If you all have questions about that afterwards, like if you really want me to argue for that, uh, you can ask me after. Um, so first off, let's look at Romans 1, uh, which I think is your, uh, is your strongest argument. Um, and it's one that I found to be difficult to uh, work around just because it is so explicit in what it says. Um, and it is Paul that's saying it. Um, and so... Uh, it gives me pause and it gives me a lot of trouble. Um, however, I want us to look at a, uh, a couple of different um, possibilities and ideas uh, first. Um, uh, before I even, actually before I even jump into Romans 1, um, I want to say uh, this whole idea that we have right now of sexual orientation, um, while he might, uh, and, he's, and he's right, Paul was aware that they were uh, homosexuals who uh, could be and were in monogamous relationships, and that's fine. Um, however, uh, this whole idea of sexual orientation uh, is uh, ha- came about in the last century. Um, it's a little over 100 years old, and really it's only been developed in the past couple of decades, um, this idea that you could actually be born a homosexual, um, and that it's not you trading in something for something else, uh, but that's just naturally how you were created to be. Um, and so... Um, I want to look at Romans 1 again, and uh, I want to read it again, and I want, to look, I want you to look at the pattern, and I want us to look at the general theme of what's happening in Romans 1, um, and see if we can't come to a different conclusion. Um, so, uh, where am I going to start? Um, let's go with starting verse 21. <coughs> For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged, pay attention to that word, exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to this honoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passion. For the woman, for their, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. 
And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves a due penalty for their error. We'll stop there. Um, so throughout this passage, uh, I, I think uh, it would be hard not to agree that this primary focus of this and what Paul's trying to do is teach them about idolatry. Um, and I think that's uh, the theme behind uh, his description of the Gentiles is that they uh, continuously um, exchanged uh, uh, things of God for things not of God. So they exchanged their knowledge of God or the truth about God for a lie. They exchanged uh, or they started worshiping created things uh, rather than the creator, right? They exchanged natural relations with unnatural relations, all those things. So it's, there's this continuous idea of exchange, right? Um, and so, um, with our modern knowledge of uh, this idea that sexual orientation uh, is real, it does exist, and that um, homosexuals can be naturally born that way, could it be that um, what he's arguing for here is not so much about homosexuality, but it's about exchanging what God naturally gave you for something that is completely unnatural? Uh, you're exchanging the truth about God for a lie. Uh, you're worshiping created things rather than the creator. And you're exchanging uh, a God-gifted sexuality for something that is completely unnatural. right? And Paul would use this example for the Jews because homosexuality to them at the time, while Paul may have been aware of monogamous homosexual relationships, uh, for the Jews, homosexuality was the pinnacle of lust and of... Uh, uh, was the absolute, on a scale of 1 to 10, of sexual perversion. Homosexuality is a 10. Right, And so um, he is using this example, uh, uh, he's giving the example to the Jews to, ex- to try to show them the extreme, uh, uh, the extreme perversion and the extreme, uh, uh, how far they're willing to go um, to worship something else uh, rather than what God has given them. Um, right? So back then, they had no idea... Uh, they didn't know of this idea of being of being born naturally homosexual. To them, homosexuality was something that you get to only after uh, being becoming incredibly sexually perverse. Um, so even if there were two gay people in a monogamous relationship, to the Jews back then, those two gay people got there by both becoming so sexually perverse that all they desired were each other. Um, whereas now we know that's not the case. Whereas now we know that people are born naturally to be homosexuals. And so to claim that this type of homosexuality that Paul is talking about in Romans 1 uh, can apply to homosexuality, to the homosexuality that we know of today, to homosexuals that we know are born naturally homosexual, who didn't get there through perversion, who didn't get there through idolatry, um, I don't think it works, um, uh, would be the conclusion that I come to from that. Um, They exchange something that is natural for something that is unnatural. For homosexuals, that would look like them exchanging being a homosexual for heterosexuals. That would mean them actually listening to all the Christian camps that people force them to go to to try to change their orientation. Um, that would be like me, a heterosexual male, um, exchanging that heterosexuality for uh, homosexuality. I could only get there, because right now I don't desire that at all. Um, I would only be able to get there if something really wrong happened to me, if I became incredibly perverse. Um, I believe the same is true with people who are naturally born homosexuals. And I think that's the point of Romans 1, is to not let yourself get to that point. Not to stray so far out of God's design for you um, that you would trade all of that away. Um, so I don't think it works for, for the um, type of homosexuals that exist uh, today, um, or that we know, or with the knowledge of homosexuality that we have today. 
Um, you posed a lot of uh, different questions. Let me look through this. Um, where am I at on time? Uh, I'm, I'm over my time. Do you want me to stop there and do questions? Because you asked a lot of... Uh, How much more do you have? Is there one or two that you thought were more important? Um, well, just as far as like you, you uh, posed this idea that we cannot reinterpret our view of homosexuality because we have no new data. And while you're right as far as scripturally we have no, no new data, I would say that we do have new data in the form of sexual orientation. We know that that exists. Um, and um, how would I weigh tradition? Um, heavily depending on the, on the subject, I think. Uh, depending on whether I think they're on the right side of history or the wrong side of history, basically. Um, so with things like violence and war and things like that, I would definitely go with our early church fathers um, and their views of it. Um, however, uh, with things like slavery or with like women's rights and things like that, I would not. Just because I know they were not, um, uh, they weren't egalitarians, they weren't involved uh, to the point where we are. And so, the, does that answer your question on that? All right. Uh, okay, well, well, that's good. All right, questions from the audience. Here we go. Uh, all right, I saw Michelle's hand first. Adam, yes. Yeah, now she's yelling at Andy. Do it. born this way that because I, I do agree that scientific data has shown us that this is kind of the case um, scientific data has also shown us that alcoholism can be passed and, and things like that so I wonder what you would say to the argument of do we take that as a product of Genesis 3 like this is from the fall it is now humanity just kind of in general is broken do you what would you have to say to that um, as far as uh, as a response, like right, right. Um, I, I would argue a like I did in my original presentation that we have to rethink what is natural and unnatural now, mm-hmm. um, in light of uh, Jesus and what He did. Um, and I would also say, uh, as far as like alcoholism and something like that is concerned, um, I'd have to look again at the data. I'm going to be speaking blindly here about alcoholism, but from what I've looked at it is that most of the people that try to show that alcoholism is actually like genetic um, is that they have a very hard time proving that versus something like being born homosexual. And homosexuality isn't something that's passed along in genes. It's you're either born that way or you're not, um, from what I can, from what I've surmised from looking at research. It's a difficult uh, problem because uh, typically uh, the alcoholic is born in a family with a history of alcoholism. So is that nature or nurture? Right. So that makes it right. a difficult call. And, yeah, and so. Once again, I, me personally, I, I don't buy into that that people are born or that people, some people are more addic- have more addictive personalities than others. Mm-hmm. Um, I think anyone and everyone has the power to uh, live in moderation, and I think that's just a, uh, an excuse personally. That's a very uh, sorry if I offended anybody here. I didn't mean so to do some that. Some could say that um, you would turn that on the homosexual argument. Uh, yeah. Right. And again, uh, I don't know the data as well. Yeah, Tell you what, do let, me, let me rephrase, if you don't mind, Michelle, yeah. uh, a little bit, because I kind of sense what you're getting at there. Mm-hmm. How would this, uh, um, taking in mind what you're talking about, new data and homosexuality and someone being born that way, would it still, uh, would the same logic and line of reasoning apply to someone who was sexually attracted to animals? Uh, or had, had another paraphernalia that's less... Mm-hmm. That's Acceptable doesn't have a movement to support them, uh, but is something that they can show is a natural 
natural. They're born with that particular predilection. Do you have a response? Has anyone proven that bestiality or incest or pedophilia is something that's naturally born into them? You can make the same argument for homosexuality. Uh, most major studies would say that you couldn't. Say that you can. Okay. That's a response. I mean, that's, that's a very good response to the question. Um, okay. I believe in the second, Justin, uh, in the back. Yes. Uh, I have a question. We haven't talked about bisexuality. Okay. And so your, your statement about you know homosexuality would be unnatural for them to switch to heterosexuality. You can't really separate the discussion of homosexuality because it kind of goes along with bisexuals and also transgender and all that. So how would you answer? What would be unnatural for bisexuals? Um, I'd say... Uh, for the purposes of this argument, I would say that uh, bisexuality doesn't fall into the same category. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as, to my knowledge, I don't know if it's proven that people are born bisexual. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that could actually fall into the category of uh, sexual perversion, possibly, um, uh, versus someone who just knows from the second they're born, they have no doubt in their mind, I'm attracted to the same sex. Um, and where other people are just confused and, and whatever else, um, I think they wouldn't fall into the same category. Um, am I making an argument that bisexuality is a sin or whatever? Not right now, no. But for the, for the purpose of your question, I don't... I what can't. scientific data are we talking about um, as far as, you know, we have scientific evidence for homosexuality being something that people are born with? Um, if I have internet in here, I can tell I mean, I've you. heard, you know, before about, you know, a gene or whatever, but I, have, I don't... To my knowledge, and I think there are people in the crowd who might actually have expertise in this, but I won't speak for them. Uh, Most of the scientific data actually hinges on whether someone can change their orientation. And so with lack of evidence that people have ever successfully changed, which I think is a scientific consensus right now, the discussion comes to this is not something that's fluid or that someone can choose necessarily to change or whatnot. So working backwards, there's probably something that we should accept their testimony, which is that from their first kind of sexual desires, mm-hmm. they've kind of had a spin. Um, Can I might stand yeah. corrected on that, but well, to, let me answer your question. Things. One, uh, okay, uh, is that if you want to look into it uh, deeply, you'd find Robert Stoller, who wrote the book on sexual perversions. And that might be an interesting thing. It's, it's, How do you spell that? S T O L L A R, M D. That's an old book, maybe. Maybe as far back as the 70s, I forget what it was. And the, I guess the other thing I just want to toss out is uh, early, early in my practice, uh, the old Freudian concept of the, the, the uh, over, overbearing mother and the absent father was kind of the, the uh, nature cause of homosexuality. Uh, and uh, then as time went on, we began to see more and more that well, it just seems like these people were wired from the beginning, and I think now you've even, I think, looked up some brain studies where there's actually, a, I, I, I don't remember my neuroanatomy anymore, but actual brain differences. Mm-hmm. And would you mind telling everyone what you do, Bob, for those? I'm a psychiatrist. Yes. Okay, very cool. Uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, and to answer your questions, the three big ones that I've researched that have come to the conclusion that uh, people are born homosexual, or some people are born homosexual. Uh, is the American Psychological Association, the American Medical Association, and the American Academy of Pediatrics are the three big ones that have, I guess, their people that work for them have come to a consensus that yes, it is something you're born with. 
or it can be. And for anybody who challenges those particular uh, studies, and the purpose of the debate today, excuse me, the discussion, we have to allow for the possibility of the 100% right to further the conversation any further. Mm. Um, okay, uh, I, I see you, Rich. If we could get let Justin speak, and then uh, he had a question. Uh, my question is for Mike. Uh, <clears throat> um, understanding that you know everybody is sinful, sinful by nature. Um, and I don't know, I, I'm going to go ahead and just go out on a limb and say that both of y'all, well, probably all th I'm sure all three of y'all know a whole lot more about Scripture than I do. Um, I'm asking this under the assumption that all sins are equal, or at least for the most part, uh, in God's eyes, are equal. Um, why, as a, um, a religious body, as Christians, do we attack homosexuals so much more than... Um, people who uh, idolize different things or uh, people of different religion or anything. I mean, there are some homosexuals who are Christians or claim to be at least. Um, and, I mean, that, I feel like that would be more like they're on our team. Why do we attack them so much more, than it seems, than other... Good question. Okay. You got the question? Yes. Cool. Go for it. Fair enough. I think... I mean, that's the answer. You're correct. Uh... I think Adam's point is well taken that there's an a inherent disgust factor that we still struggle with um, that I think plagues conversation and plagues a relational aspect there. I once heard someone say that Christians shouldn't major in things that the Bible or that Jesus minors in. Um, so, for instance, uh, in the scriptures, you're going you're gonna to find so much about wealth and poverty that would condemn so many Christians and churches wholesale. No one bats an eye. Obviously, we like money, right? I'm not going to condemn you if you're going to tithe to my church, right? I'm not going to condemn us. If, if I take a, a biblical view on wealth, right, perhaps some of our churches within 30 miles don't exist. Um, point taken. Gluttony is going to be much more mentioned than homosexuality. How many almost morbidly obese pastors and church leaders do you see but the very thought of even think, discussing a homosexual being in church leadership right, no, I'm sorry, you're excommunicated etc, mm -hmm. etc et mm -hmm. point taken, I still think you have to deal seriously with sin and not sin and that type of thing and there have to be faithful sessions there, but yes point okay. taken. Kathleen I see you let, let Rich go and then you uh, this kind of goes back to the other thing about nature and nurture and I, I don't I think we, you know, whether, whether research, it seems like homosexuality is a switch one way or the other, kind of, I mean, bisexuality was mentioned, but I think for the most part, it's kind of like one orientation or the other. And that, to me, speaks strongly of what you, what you pointed out, Adam, as, as, as evidence, I don't call it scientific evidence, of, of you know, born versus made. Um, I would not be surprised in the next 10 or 100 years if people looking at the genome, genome find something. And in the, in the end of it, they might find something, <clears throat> looking at the genes, they might find something like they have so far about alcohol addiction. You know, there might be something squishy, a tendency, and that sort of thing. But we're not talking about a tendency. We're talking about a switch. And to me, that really speaks strongly that you really are made that way. And I, I think maybe all of us are past that argument already, or maybe some of you aren't. I am. Um, 
And you know, does that make it okay? It kind of begs that question. But but I don't think it. I don't. You know, I think in the vast majority of the cases, you are born that way. And I don't think we have the evidence for that yet. Uh, and I think if we if we had it out of the genome uh, project, we would already know about it. Uh, to speak real quick to the genetics of the issue, because that's come up several times. Alcoholism, they haven't, they haven't identified specifically the gene, but it's my understanding from the studies that I've read that they have narrowed it down to a certain stretch, and what they have determined is alcoholism is part of an activator gene, which means you're born with the possibility of being an alcoholic, but something has to engage that, something has to trigger that, whether it's your first drink or your 50th. Um, whereas in the case of homosexuality, the people who are doing the genetic studies there, again, just based off the studies that I personally have read, it's my understanding that that is not an activator gene, that that is what's called a, uh, all right, there's a name for it, and it escapes me. But basically, it's a gene that's always on uh, uh, in the same way that um, hair color or eye color yeah. is a consistent gene from the beginning. Now, whether or not you believe any of that, that's up to you. But just to, to, so we don't get bogged down into a genetics debate uh, tonight, that, that those are the studies that I personally have read and everything Adam has said kind of falls in to line speak, with that. To speak from my position, and you brought this up, I, I would... I would be cautious, though. I, I don't think we can invest in that uncritically theological capital. Um, so, for instance, it seems to me the same work and logic underlying that kind of stuff. Perhaps we might start saying the same things about some Jerry Sandusky's in the news um, recently. Mm -hmm. Perhaps, I mean, people, we take people's testimonies like that seriously as well, um, that this is kind of... I can't help myself, right? This is who I'm attracted to. It's a slippery slope um, when you yeah. get there. I agree. Now, it doesn't mean it, you, it wouldn't support that. I'm just saying, uncritically, I think the question still remains. In, in to support what he just said, the same study that's looking for the homosexuality gene also narrowed down a stretch of the DNA looking for the sociopath gene. So, uh, slippery slope indeed. I, I, I see. <laughs> <laughs> not, not related. Not related genes, but just, I mean, same other kind of study. That was just a point. Uh, right. Not a, I have something to say before. Okay, oh, you have a point? Uh, no, he was just agreeing. Oh, okay. No, um, I'm, I'm pointing at Stephanie. And uh, Kathleen actually has a question on the board, so. Uh, okay. Uh, Stephanie, I see you. Uh, give me one second. Uh, let's hear from Kathleen, and then you're on, the, on deck. Kathleen? This is for you, Mike. Is there a sin that the cross doesn't cover? And then. If that's so, because you see good Christian people struggling their whole lives to not be gay, and they struggle their whole lives to not do that, would there be a sin that God but is, exists that you'll just die to? Uh, yeah, I think, again, this is a, a, a sticky situation. From my position, the key component to that would be struggling and willingness. Um, so willing sin would be a habitual signal from people in my camp that one's not converted. So one's converted, the spirit works, it convicts, and things change. Now, you might die struggling with something, right? But there was that struggle there, that sense that this is not what God's designed, so I'm, I'm actively trying to pursue obedience. So that's where people would come from. Um, and again, a lot of the church has been very disgusted with homosexuality. It hasn't even attempted to work with these people or to care for them and love them. Now there's a movement saying, we'll love you, right? We'll work with you, we'll walk with you, things of that nature. But the key distinction will always be like, is this a willing thing or not? Yeah. So the same way that I probably willingly couldn't continue to be a hate-filled, um, wealthy, serial robber and then expect when I die to be like, well, the cross covered my sins. We'd be like, well, where was that for the past 30 years, right? 
that kind of same logic would be applied from people in my camp. Um, so the big distinction would be willingness and then like struggle. So, oh, do I have to raise my hand? No. <laughs> <laughs> Move to the back of the line. Go ahead and make it. So people who struggle with pride for their entire lives and don't even acknowledge it and die, they never struggle with it. Well, you'd never hear someone saying that, right? right. But yes, the logic goes both ways. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Okay, I want to thank y'all again because this is my third one and I, I'm, I'm so grateful for the respectful and loving and godly way you deal with very painful subjects. And my question is for Adam, you marked down Ruth 1, 15 through 18 as mm -hmm. one of your key scriptures and I read it and I'm totally clueless. I'm sorry, yeah. Uh, <laughs> when I originally gave uh, some of my stuff to Mike, I had done a huge section on um, homosexual marriage for some reason. And then I looked at it again and realized it's about homosexuality, not homosexual marriage. Um, and so that was... That was a marriage thing. That, well, that's an... Uh, many, many, many uh, couples use right, that as right. part of their wedding vows, right. even though it's a, a so vow it between... this topic, right? I'm sorry? It just doesn't deal with this topic. Right, right it's more about homosexual okay. marriage than... Uh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, just because it was a vow that's very similar to marriage between two women. All right, I see Brittany and I see Zach, and if you'll forgive me, I'm going to sneak a question in here real quick. And then Brittany and Zach. Um, this is a question for Mike. I have a question for Mike real quick. Uh, you mentioned the fact that how they did have uh, a knowledge of homosexual relationships, even monogamous ones, and they had that data. That was stuff that they did have. However, a lot of recent studies in the animal kingdom and in the insect kingdom reveals uh, the fact that homosexuality is not necessarily a human trait. In mm -hmm. fact, it's something that seems to be more or less universal across all mammals at least, if not beyond. I don't know the depths of it. More than likely, they didn't have that particular piece of the puzzle. So does that alter or affect or change anything in any way for you? If I'm thinking for Paul from someone from my perspective, I think it reinforces his point. And I okay. think this would also be critique to how Adam interpreted Romans 1. Adam interprets, interprets the exchange there, so A for B, as an individual recurrent type thing. So Joe Bob in 2011 exchanges his homosexuality, steps into his heterosexuality suit, right, and now he's done something wrong. I think Paul's situating the discussion in primordial time. So all of creation has exchanged what's natural, and now there are elements of unnatural in there. Um, so I think he's not seeing it, at least that's how we would interpret it. It's not an individual's like, everyday type of thing, like where this person somewhere in their life does that. It's at some point beyond, right? And so now we look out and see it in its evidence. At one point, all of creation was given uh, heterosexuality, and some of creation has exchanged that, and that's evidence of God's wrath. So I would imagine, from my, if I'm trying to do that, Paul might say, yeah, well done, right? Animal kingdom itself has fallen into the world, and the natural relationships God's given the animal kingdom now display the wrath of God, that they're outside of kind of design and the order can of creation. I, can I rebuttal that? Is that allowed? Uh, uh, it, it is allowed. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, well, once again, <laughs> I'm allowing it. That's, uh, that's, <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I'm generous. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that, yeah. Um, the, uh, that that would fail to take into account, though, that um, a our, our recent data of sexual orientation and b the historical context of what of uh, that Paul is dealing with, in that um, to the audience that he's talking to, uh, to them hom homosexuality is the pinnacle of creation gone wrong. Um, whereas he was not aware, though, that homosexuality could be a part of natural of the way things are naturally made. 
Um, and then he was uh, also not aware that um, of, I'm sorry, he wasn't aware of our sexual orientation, the knowledge that we have now. Um, and then he's speaking to an audience in which uh, that, they, that would stick with them. They would know that immediately. Um, uh, just like they might use uh, an example, of, the same example for um, something else that we, I'm trying to think of examples, I'm blanking right now. Um, but for slavery or whatever else. Real quick, I think you've missed actually my point, which is that I think Paul might agree that you can be born that way post-fall. But I think this is talking about something pre-fall. Um, so pre-fall, he would have said there's no such homosexual orientation. Post-fall, yeah, I mean, whatever, right? And this is evidence. Again, the, the interpretation can disagree, and you, one might take one or the other, but I think that would be the point of this side, uh, is that sexual orientation wouldn't apply to Paul uh, in that, because he's situated that well before the orientation that ever happens. Um, and, yeah, and I would say he, he has that frame of mind because of the historical context that he's in. Okay. Okay. Uh... Okay, uh, Brittany and then Zach, you on deck. Okay. Uh, no, I'm so upset if I should actually open my mouth today. <laughs> um, okay, first, I truly, wholly believe that we have been called to love everyone. Every single person, creature on this planet. And that is where I'm coming from, from my views. Um, and I do have a question for Mike, merely because I'm confused as to what your um, true statement was intended to be. I feel like might have perverted a bit, so I just want to really understand what you're going for. Um, what I interpreted from what you said is that having homosexual thoughts is okay. The action is what causes sin. That is what I understood, and I'm wanting to know if that is what you thought. Yes. Nuanced a bit, maybe, when you talk about, like terms of like lust. So, the same way, maybe, I would tell a heterosexual man to spend 30 minutes working out his desires in his mind. He might have crossed over into some kind of sin. So, if thoughts means that, then maybe no. But the desire itself, and maybe like a DNA thought, yeah, I think. So, having the desire, but then saying, no, this is against creation, then you're still heading towards uh, Christ. But if you say... I have these desires, I would like to act on the desires, but I don't actually go through with it, then that still is a sin. No, not if you don't go through with it. Not if you, but you can still have those thoughts and you're perfectly okay. Yeah, the same way I might see, like, how far you let the thoughts go. It would be be like, um, having fantasies is not okay. It would be like seeing a a, uh, a pizza on the, there and be like, (laughs) I want the pizza, but I know it's bad for me, so I, I want it, but I'm going to walk away, that's good for me, my health. If I eat pizza, that's bad for me. Okay. I'm confused. The way that I kind of define lust uh, is that, like, if you you can, as, as a heterosexual, you can man, you can see a woman, and like and like think thoughts about her. But if you keep thinking about them to the point where you start feeling like sexually aroused, mm-hmm. at that point you you've crossed a boundary. Okay. Uh, and and so that that's kind of my definition of lust. That would that might help you distinguish between having the thought and then dwelling on it. It's like you're dwelling on it to the point where you are getting a, a physical. Okay, so homosexual thoughts with arousal, that's when we get to sin. No, it's, it's not even. Well, I, See, think, I, like, I, I need I, that. I know that. that I need yeah, yeah, I do think we need to. It's a messy line, and one that I think most males, be, with the kind of way they're sexually. Formed who follow Jesus have tried to work out in their own life. At seventy points, well, you can be aroused in just a second. Yeah. And sometimes that, yeah. the, just the look is 
arouses you didn't think. It's just this fine line, and it, it's going to be hard to define it in a way that everyone understands, between so, the instinct and then the enjoy. act of dwelling and enjoying and staying on it. Okay. More, more importantly. The more how importantly. How prevent having the sin? Like what? Same well, way a heterosexual male. So we just, we don't... And I do think we need to make a distinction. We are discussing the possibility of homosexuality being a sin. We're not delving into the admitted sin of lust. And lust is something that is could be seen and is called to be sinful amongst any sexual orientation. It doesn't matter if you're homosexual or heterosexual or have an intense desire for fruit. You can, you can be lustful. <laughs> uh, so, okay. Uh, now, I'm, Zach, I'm assuming that that was a clarification and not the question you brought. Absolutely. All right, let's hear the question. Okay, this is directed to Adam. Um, you... Rebutted Romans one very well in the the exchange of a, um, of a of a of one type of sexual desire for another that you exchanged something that was meant to be good for something that was not and um, tying that into the, the whole grafting portion that we were Gentiles we've been brought into a family I think that we could all agree that Paul was kind of the poster boy of Gentiles being brought into the family of God. And while here he uses the explicit terminology, exchanging this for this, there are multiple times in Scripture where later on he just lists that out with other sins uh, that, that are openly accepted as sinful. Um, and I think it would be hard to make the argument that in that list he's just using it as shock value or as the, the epitome of where that leads. Um, what would you? How would you respond to that? Uh, first, can I clarify? What, what do you mean by he's the Gentile poster boy? In that you persecuted for him. <laughs> he he yeah, he was uh, uh, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, okay. that, uh, he is. Yeah, one of his primary goals and focuses as a Christian was to bring Gentiles right in, and and so I, I don't think for him there was so much of a we don't want these people in right. Um, um, so, uh, uh, when I was describing the one, Romans 1 thing, that was particular to that passage, and I was not making the argument that Paul did not see it the same way that the rest of the Jews did. Um, in fact, uh, when Mike brought that up, I would say, I said that he was bound by the historical context that he lived in. Um, in other words, uh, they had no clue what sexual orientation was. Uh, they had no clue that maybe it could be a natural thing that you could be born that way. To them, homosexuality was uh, only, uh, at least from what I understand, um, uh, a result of intense perversion. Um, and now, whether two intensely perverted males could get together monogamously and stay that way, uh, I, I know that recent research has shown that Paul was probably aware of that happening. Uh, but that does not mean that he believed it to be a natural thing, um, and he believed it to be something that they could not help um, and I still think that he was influenced by the, that Jewish tradition of thinking. So we would, we would be doing what Paul did for the Gentiles, not expecting Paul to do it for us. Right. Thank you. Does that make sense? Did that clarify it? I hope so. It, it did. Okay. Sorry for not being clear. Okay, let's see here. Uh, Ms. Watson. Um, I guess I'm not even sure who this is for. I'd be curious maybe both of you guys' responses. But what about, I think you maybe mentioned the camps. And um, what about the whole thought with, um, you know, pray away the gay? 
I, I don't mean to, you know, sometimes, yeah. but, but really, what, what, what's the, Mike, what's, what's your stance on that, and, and what's your stance on that? Let's, let's hear from Mike. I think from reading on and off in the past when people have brought up the issue to me, and then reading today a little bit, uh, seems like every effort that's been made to change gay people, to reorient orientation has failed, uh, which, so for someone from my camp, you would hope that if this was like the natural thing, that there would be some lane into it, right? Um, the same way that the hope is that if you're prideful, you can learn to be generous um, and selfless. might not be easy, but you can get there. Um, so that would be like all-star, right? That's what you would want. It doesn't look like we found it if it exists. Um, and then in the name of being honest, you have to kind of admit that. Um, so it would seem like right now the best you could do is to offer sorry. Uh, and again, I think possibly the three things I mentioned would help with that. That's soften the blow, the singleness, celibacy, that kind of community, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, so I think you're doing damage if you're going to pretend that things have happened that haven't happened. Uh, I completely agree with Mike. Um, and I think that if, uh, yeah, so it's completely damaging. Um, and it's, uh, it's shown to, um, at least in different cases that I've read, shown to be uh, very demeaning, um, very humiliating, um, and um, like dehumanizing. Like it takes away who they are as a person. Um, I think that if sexuality is proven to be a sin, then the proper response would be one of Mike's uh, methods that he, particularly um, singleness and celibacy, and then finding your worth in something else, uh, like a community, a church, something like that. That seems to be the only method. And then just admitting to yourself that I'm a homosexual, there's nothing I can do about that. I just can't act on that. Um, that would be the only solution I would see if, if sexuality did prove to be a sin. Uh, Hayden in the orange socks. <laughs> HBU. Repping that HBU. <laughs> uh, my question is for Mike. Um, if you you kind of kind of glossed over a little bit in your argue, in your opening argument, and that's the idea of gay marriage. Um, what what would we say then if a homosexual man or a homosexual woman were to live a completely and seemingly heterosexual life, but the only difference is is that whenever they finally choose someone to marry that they be of the same gender. Like that would be the only difference is the gender of their spouse. How would, like you kind of said that it doesn't really apply, or not that it doesn't really apply, but because it's not really mentioned in Romans 1 that it doesn't really do something. I don't know, I, it was, it's been an hour, so I don't really. Are you talking about? I can't really quote what you said. Are you saying their lives are the same in terms of like morality? Like, yeah. Like, so, yeah. Suburban American family, give money to the poor, exactly. nice to their neighbors, have adopted a couple kids, and exactly. help the world out by all accounts. Um, and then there's your question, how should Christians respond, or should we try to prohibit the government from allowing that kind of thing? Oh, no, no, no I'm not going political Okay, with so, I'm, yeah. Like, how should the church view it then? Because according to, in, in my interpretation, according to the scripture of Romans 1, then it would be okay. Yeah. Like homosexuality would then fall under the category of not a sin, that they live their lives according to what scripture has told them, just simply their spouse that they choose to live, to be with for the rest of their lives, happens to be of the same gender. I think the point would be taken in that you shouldn't demonize those kind of people. Um, 
I think again because so what Adam said about the hurt and the uh, holy, harm and holiness equation um, which I do think though natural theology particularly in a creation setting has to define that a little bit so by our accounts perhaps things look great and again I'm not saying we make stuff up right like no they're actually killing people and destroying the family system and all those kind of things but saying idolatry if it is idolatry and it's definitely listed as a result of idolatry is a bad thing for them and for the people around them and for creation itself. Perhaps we can't see that, things of that nature. And again, we don't need to make things up. I mean, we can say they look like great people. They're nice to me. I enjoy being around them, right? I would trust them with my kids, things of that nature. But at a deeper level, I think at the end of the day, there's something about the fabric of the universe that's being messed with that I'm not comfortable with. Um, so it would go back to kind of like a blind, almost you might say, like, reliance on that natural idea um, I would say again though I wouldn't want to make things up I wouldn't want to demonize those people okay I saw Adriana's hand and then we'll have hear from you alright so um, it's not a sin unless you act on your act upon it what about the he lives his heter- a heterosexual life but he goes to his bedroom, has a man magazine, and he is going at it because that's what he is. He's, no, he's, he's not acting on it with physically with another person, but he's Rats. still taking care of taking care of business. You know, I, I, acting on his desire. He's not, he's still acting up, acting up on it. Okay, and your question will be directed to my crowd. Whoever to whomever, and who, who wants to grab that one? Uh, it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Grab it, Adam. Are you sweating now? It, it's hot here. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> it's hot. It, it, it would. Uh, I think it would be probably. Who being recorded here? From the way I look at it, it would probably be wrong on either account, whether it's a sin or whether it's not, um, because then. Uh, you're, and this is debatable as well. Um, but then you're crossing the line again into into lust, and then acting upon lust. Whether or not you're doing it with an actual person, um, you're 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 fantasizing about that person on the page, right? So even me as a heterosexual male, if I were to uh, go buy a Playboy and look at it and then act upon it, um, I would consider that probably cheating on my wife. Um, just because that's me acting upon lust. Um, act upon desire that God gave me for her. Um, same thing with a heterosexual male. Um, uh, if uh, it is not a sin, I still believe that homosexuals are bound by the same exact um, relationship, rules, laws, whatever you want to call them, as, as heterosexuals, um, which is uh, you remain um, uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, faithful. Faithful until you find the person you're going to marry and then you marry them and then that sexuality that God has gifted you is designed for that person, that person only um, and no one else and so on those grounds, yeah, it's a problem uh, but for me, it doesn't really have anything to do with to sexuality, uh, if homosexuality is a sin or not do what? to the single guy right, uh, and so even that single guy um, is eventually going to marry I mean, maybe uh, is eventually going to marry someone if he's a homosexual, he'll marry a guy if he's a heterosexual married girl um, and all of those feelings that he's feeling even if he hasn't met that woman yet those feelings are for that person um, and that so would he be cheating on his future wife or husband 
Uh, I mean, could you? You're, could you you're getting into. I mean, <laughs> we're, we're wondering if you're yeah. Because then the, the, this the is lesson. a different debate. But, but I do but. think I do think you bring up a good point, though. And Adam's response to the question would be, what would be wrong about the situation you're describing is not necessarily homosexuals. The homosexuality involved. It is the it is other aspects and other factors about the event that's happening. Pornography, yes. Yeah, okay. it, yeah, it's more, yeah. Right, I don't want to presume this week. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, thank you for your patience. On, on, the, on the homosexual marriage issue, I keep coming back to, and I can't remember when Mike said this, so I'm going to paraphrase you, so if I get it wrong, but that it's very upsetting to you when Christians get upset when people who aren't Christians act like they're not Christians. And so the idea of imposing what I believe on an entire community that didn't grow up the way I grew up and may or may not have been blessed with revelation yet, I'm not sure that's tenable anymore. I'm, I'm just not. Uh, okay, I have a question for Adam. Okay. On your trajectory argument, uh, which is something I think is uh, very well spoken, and you, you did a good job of describing it and outlining it, and I do believe it's something that's necessary with the church. However, the entire Old Testament could almost be read, or at least most of it, as a litany of times that Israel strayed and had to be just forced back to the correct path. Is there any kind of defense? If we're going through a spiritual and uh, interpretational trajectory of Christianity... Are there any warning signs that may be applied here or things that would enable us to know that, no, we're, we're heading in the right direction and not straying from the path? Right. Um, well, I don't know if I'm going to be answering your question directly, but hopefully indirectly. Here we go. I'll take it. Um, uh, well, the thing that also scares me about this issue is that, and, and Mike mentioned this already earlier, is that time and time again, the church has found itself on the wrong side of history. Yes. Um, uh, women's issues, slavery. Nazi Germany. Yeah, Uh, that's a big one. Um, So all those different things, uh, we've typically found ourselves on the wrong side of history, and typically uh, that comes whenever we are um, uh, persecuting someone, a group of people that might think differently than us, um, and uh, especially on something that is uh, that is debatable. That is, uh, there is not a 100% firm theological or scriptural argument that homosexuality is, without a doubt, a sin. Um, And so, with that being the case, for me at least, uh, as a Christian, I want to break the cycle of being on the wrong side of history. And for once, be on the side of affirmation and love and... um, uh, as opposed to the other side. Well, that's it. Well, okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's see. I see Kathleen and I see. Uh, ah! Let's, let's hear from Morgan because we haven't heard from her. And then Kathleen yeah, yeah. next. Uh, Morgan? Well, I wanted to make comment. This is my first session like this, so I'm not sure. I'm pretty much just a statement kind of person. <laughs> but what came to me is when we were talking about Mike's position, a renewed focus on singleness being the primary station. Uh, for the life of a Christian as a correction for the sin, I would just like to wonder about the Catholic religion and wonder how many people enter that life trying to change perhaps who they were born as, and then we know lots of bad things have occurred through that. 
Are you talking about like monks or nuns? The, the priests. Oh, okay. so you're talking about the priests. They sexually perverted, and I wonder if they're trying to cover up the fact that they were born a homosexual, and they're trying their very best to do the thing that they believe God wants them to do, to be accepted by our Lord. I have to wonder, and just as a general statement, I'm a recovering homophobic. I inherited it from the teaching of my father, who is also a Christian. But I am really understanding Adam's point. And for me, my Christianity is just ever so simple. We are called to love. And just before I got here tonight, I had a cigarette with the, the young man at the gas station that I always go in, and, and he's very sweet, and he shared with me that he was gay. And I invited him to come to church. Good. And I would hope that my church family would welcome him with the same love and respect that they give to me as a smoker, because I'm a sinner too. And to me, that's just the simplest thing in the world to understand. Well, and I've appreciated learning everything you both have shared. Uh, I, I will say, just uh, becoming a Christian here um, and being discipled by Mike and by Chris, who's not here, um, I will say that one of the, uh, this can be a bragging moment on the church. Do uh, it. <laughs> yes. uh, say it loud. Yeah. No, no, no. Uh, I will say that one of the things that drew me in more than anything else was how was how loving this church was, um, and so uh, I would you inviting him you invited him to the right place um, because I know he will be well loved here. Um, uh, so just wanted to say that brag about the church for a little bit uh, most loving place I've ever been, um, and then uh, to to speak to your other issue with the um, that that could be the case. However, I, I would. Um, just as I mentioned earlier, I would go along the lines of their, their actions that have been very public, that have been horrible. Um, I would say that goes more along the lines of just sexual perversion altogether. I don't know if that could be attributed to homosexual or heterosexual. Well, what I meant um, is maybe they were trying to suppress that part of themselves. Um, and it out perverted. Well, it's... I that maybe I, I don't know if they've done any studies on priests to prove that, but it could yeah. be that they were sexually perverted going in to being a priest, and then the sexual perversion just came out. Uh, but it had nothing to do with them pushing down a homosexuality. I would think. Thing or something I would think like if that. anything, that would be a good case study if, if the church yeah. tried to do that yeah. into what went wrong there. Yeah. Like, what kind of communication and accountability and support system would you need? I would imagine if they go in to the cel- into the a celibate kind of lifestyle in the Catholic Church. They're not very upfront with the fact that, hey, I have desires, like homosexual lives. It's more like a running away type thing. Right. Uh, Perhaps like accountability and more of a loving support system would help that trajectory. And you may not know this about my own personal resume, but I, I went to a Catholic university. And so There's the, one among us. The, yes. <laughs> uh, but the official Catholic... Uh, position on homosexuality is to be homosexual is not a sin to act on it is that is the official answer Uh, as far as the priest situation and all those wonderful stories about what they're doing with altar boys um, the the other official response that you will hear is that there are so many priests in the world and you can take any profession such as teachers and see a similar 
selection of deviants. Oh. You can take politicians, see a similar selection of deviants. And it's worth noting that all priests are called to be celibate, regardless of the sexual orientation. And we never hear about the priests that father children. We only hear about the ones that molest them. Right. So it, 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 there's a little bit of possible sensationalism there. Although, again, coming from a, a, a someone who went to a Catholic university, there's a big difference between an academic Catholic uh, viewpoint and a, um, let's say, homegrown Catholic uh, viewpoint. Uh, so, for example, somebody who has been studied and brought up and has experienced Catholicism from a very academic environment is not necessarily going to have the same view of that church as someone who grew up in Ecuador, so to speak. So, now we're off topic there, but I hope that addressed the concerns you raised. I hope you guys don't mind me jumping out of Okay, uh, I saw some other hands. Kathleen, what's happening? Uh, but I've talked. Oh, Kathleen, so I'm so sorry, yes. And then. So you said that we can't have a new argument against uh, homosexuality because there's been no new evidence brought about. So you were talking about the Dead Scrolls, but like there's been no new evidence brought about for women's rights or for slavery. Yet our our ideas have changed in, in less than a hundred years for women's rights. Yeah, I think what what would have happened there is the evidence would have been so grossly misinterpreted uh, that you you come to a new interpretation. Um, so the argument would be that's what we don't want homosexual, the homosexual passages we've so grossly misinterpreted them um, I'm not sure that scholarship though has actually come up with good alternative exegesis whereas by the time you got to where we're really attacking slavery again the we never like changed slavery with scriptural arguments like that was that was something we came to afterwards when we look back and we're embarrassed about it we were like y'all misunderstood that the entire time um we're still in that process, though. Like, this church generation is in that process. Yeah, I would. So I would say, point taken. Although I would want good alternative interpretations. Yeah, the text. I don't know which one of y'all wants to ask this question because y'all are coming from different spots. But I know we're not talking about gay marriage, but I think it does come into play when we talk about inviting, wanting to invite people into our church, and they're gonna, you know, would you? I don't know what you do. I mean, as a pastor, would you officiate a gay marriage, a same-sex marriage? I think coming from your perspective, I don't know if it's more erring on the side of grace. So what would you do? Um, uh, for, for the purpose of this yeah. position. All right. Um, <laughs> All right. Uh, which is a valid um, clarification. Yeah. Uh, marriage for a long time in the Christian circle has been focused on uh, the Darwinian model of procreation, uh, male and female, that's what a marriage is about. Um, and I think uh, it needs to refocus on um, God's marriage with Israel. Um, and it's more about uh, election and covenant faithfulness. Um, and so uh, marriage is not about biology, it's about grace, basically. Um, and so um, with that in mind, uh, yes. Um, because I believe if, with that definition of marriage, um, then uh, a homose homosexual couple could exist within those bounds versus the other bounds of marriage, which is you have to be male and female, which they obviously could not exist inside of. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, it's, it's 9.25. I'm not trying to shut down the discussion, but just noting the time, and that we this is the amount of time that we kind of bracketed plus, plus a little. 
Are there any other questions? Did anybody not get heard or anyone need clarification on anything that was said today? I was actually wanting a clarification. I was just going to ask Adam later because um, it doesn't really involve homosexuality. It was um, something he just said that I had a question about, which is okay. happens often. But um, since you're proposing that, or since you're saying that it's okay, um, whenever you were in your closing, uh, when you were closing your opening statement, yeah, yeah. Okay. the first one, first yeah. time you talked, and you were, um, you said something about how. Um, um, not uh, looking at it, not only that just that God said it was wrong, but also it, you gave other reasons of why it, uh, or of like making. I guess do, do you remember saying something about like how not just that um, God said it's wrong, but also what about culture and stuff? I don't know if you remember saying that. Or right. Not. It, I, I was kind of like trying to listen and also type down a question at the same time, okay. but just because God said it's or. I guess my question to you is, God saying it's wrong, is that um, not an end-all be-all to making it a sin? Uh, no. Um, what it, would, it comes down, my whole point of that was that it comes down to how you waste uh, biblical authority with theology um, and, uh, and hermeneutics, <coughs> biblical interpretation. Um, so uh, hermeneutic, or biblical interpretation involves um, looking at historical context um, looking at the author's intentions and what he was writing, all of those different things. And so for me uh, and for my position, taking those things into account, um, just reading uh, words on a paper, just the sentence itself and taking it completely out of those, uh, those things, so taking it out of the history that I was in, taking it out of the words of the author and his intentions in writing it, uh, doing all those things and just taking it on its own basis, that's just relying solely on biblical authority. And to me, uh, that's not proper interpretation. Um, you have to have theology with that, um, which brings all those other things into play, which puts it in its proper context. Um, and then you can make a more educated um, decision on what that text actually, uh, how that text can be used today and, and what it means today, all those different things. Um, that, it's, a, it's a weight thing. It's a balance thing because it can get dangerous uh, when more people... When like typical fundamentalists just rely solely on on biblical authority and interpret everything literally, said it, it sounded a lot like you know, just because God says don't do this doesn't mean that we shouldn't do this. Right, you have to take other things into account. Yeah. Right. That's right. theology versus scripture, basically. Is what that is. All right. I think. I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. I'm, I'm no. Right, okay. Uh, I think we'll just hear one more question from Hayden, and then we'll wrap this up. Uh, I'm sorry, Brittany. Uh, all right. Hayden and Brittany. And then anybody else? Nobody's leaving their feet? Okay. Hayden, Brittany, and then we'll close. Hayden? Okay. Um, my question is, again, from Mike. Um, just as my pastor and someone that I look up to, how do we... <laughs> Whoa. That's not a loaded question. Good set. Good set. Don't mess this up. <laughs> Tread carefully, my friend. Lose my respect really quickly. How do we, as Christians, then take people who are very close to us who choose to live a homosexual lifestyle? Do we, because just out of being honest with my church family, is that my sister chose to be in a homosexual relationship for three years, and it cost me every my entire relationship with her. 
like she she's basically excommunicated from our family. She was the black sheep. Just no one really talked to her, or she just refused to talk to us. Different things like that. So how during that time frame do we then do? As Christians, do I then accept, oh, because you are living a homosexual lifestyle, God has condemned you to then go to hell? Like, are we, am I, are, are we, more specifically me, am I supposed to just learn to live with that fact mm-hmm. and, and move on, knowing that I will never, if my sister were to die tomorrow, I would never see her again? Like, how do, how do we go about, I guess, dealing with that fact? Is the question your actions or your state of mind concerning her eternal destiny? I'm I'm clear on my actions. Okay. It's it's the other one. If you address actions, then you'd be answering my question too. Okay. <laughs> Two birds, one stone. I think the actions one's a little bit easier, which is do what Jesus did. Um, so I would think, and so in your situation, just so we have a real life example right here. You would, I would think, would want to aggressively break down barriers and pursue relationship and so eat meals, pray together. I mean, and those things are going to be hard and sometimes confusing like that, but aggressively grind those things down, um, take the black sheepness away, things of that nature. Um, Jesus had a very attractive type of holiness where he doesn't um, morally legitimize certain things, but yeah, those people love to hang around with him. Uh, I don't think that's always easy to do, but I do think that would be where we should be trying to go, however that looks. As far as uh, eternal state of mind, um, that type of thing, uh, we'll actually get into this next week, which is the whole thing on hell. Um, What I would count, yeah, what I, (laughs) perfect, so come next week. What I would counsel somebody if they came to me about that is, obviously it's an emotion-filled kind of situation, is... My counsel is generally that no one knows such things, right? I mean, we don't make judgments like that. Um, and God is good. Um, and God is good by doing things unexpected. And God is good even when he does things that we don't necessarily like. Um, so we don't, we don't know what kind of eternal destiny she's going to have. In fact, I think she could die and we could have all the facts from her, but we still might not know exactly mm-hmm. what's, that, what's really going to be there for her. Um, but I would think trusting in God's nature is revealed on the cross is our utmost our utmost call here. Um, and so some would extrapolate that, we'll get into that next week, by saying, if God is that, as good as he is on the cross, that means she has perfection, heaven, whatever you want to call it, out for her. Um, I would think, regardless of that conclusion, I think there can be a childlike trust that God is that good. Um, and perhaps, so you get real hard line, I've heard, I heard a preacher once, who's this hard line Baptist, holiness guy, who said, uh, everyone is like, if hell is where all my friends and family are, I want to go to hell, not heaven. And he makes a statement that if your son goes to hell you, and you're a true Christian, you'd stand up and clap while he goes into the lake of fire. Um, based on, yeah, it's real hardliner. Based on the idea that God's ridding creation of evil, right? He's ultimately working for good and so the world will be a better place and heaven is going to be heaven because evil won't be there, things of that nature. Um, I don't think you have to take it that far in emotional things of that nature to be able to have a, this childlike trust which is God is good. Um, and the goodness that you see with Jesus dying on the cross is the ultimate reality of God's goodness. Um, and that will be experienced despite how we might interpret situations and things of that nature. Um, but that should be, I think, what we should trust, particularly in those emotional type, real life, I love that person, where they're going to be. Um, yeah. So, I mean, 
regardless of what you might think about like an inference state or whatever, you don't. I would think even if you believe that, you wouldn't go in and be like, "Well, your infant might be going to hell." Right? That's not a hospital conversation, if it's ever a conversation. The hospital conversation is, have you seen Jesus die on the cross? Did that reveal you how good God is, how faithful he is, how surprising he is, how gracious he is? That's what we trust in. And that's how you deal with this loss. That's how you deal with this mourning. Um, so, that, I mean, that's kind of where I would go. For better or for worse. So. Yeah. Um... Okay, uh, in closing, <laughs> I, I, I want to remind everybody, our, our intent tonight was not to offend. Our intent tonight was not to offend, nor was it to, it was to make you a little uncomfortable, but not to destroy your spiritual world. If you had trouble with anything you heard tonight and have trouble reconciling or need further discussion... Email Jake Milwee, that's J. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, <laughs> wow, like, where'd that come from? Um, no, I of course would be happy to talk to you, but also Mike is more than happy to talk to you as are any of our church elders, uh, which are all in the room. We've got Michelle, we've got Rich, we've got Jen here. Uh, they're there. Make use of them if you need them. Uh, and without further ado, uh, I'm going to ask Adam, actually. Please leave us close with some prayer. Love to. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm just so thankful um, just uh, that you are a complex, deep uh, uh, God, that you're, your depths are unfathom- unfathomable, that, um, uh, God, that you are just um, beyond words, beyond understanding. Um, uh, God, yet you love us, you interact with us, you bless us uh, daily. Um, and we are so thankful for that. And um, God, I'm thankful um, that we are able to come here and have open, honest discussions about uh, very complicated, very controversial issues. Um, God, with the intent of growing closer to you, with the intent of knowing you more, and with the intent of loving others better. Um, and so I pray that all of those goals were accomplished tonight. Um, I pray that we all leave here today with a better understanding of who you are and of how to love others. Um, and God, we love you so much. It's you know we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.